Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. As a mom of four kids in New York City and a writer myself, I know all too well how short everyone is on time, so I'm here to help. I'm going to interview authors and writers of all types about their work, especially as it relates to parenting and family issues. Hopefully you can listen while doing 8 million other things and fall in love with these talented scribes and their fantastic books, essays, and songs like I have, plus get some tips on surviving parenthood. For more about me, you can check out my essays at zibbyowens.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. And if you can, please leave a five-star rating or a comment. Today's episode has been sponsored by Babo Botanicals. Babo Botanicals offers your family non-toxic and pure hair, skin, and sun solutions created with natural or organic solutions. Their tagline is, family comes first naturally. As an aside, I use Babo for literally all my kids' shampoos, body washes, sun lotions, and even for me too. So definitely check them out at babobotanicals.com, B-A-B-O, botanicals.com. I'm talking today to Alison Pataki, the author of the utterly amazing memoir, Beauty in the Broken Places, a memoir of love, faith, and resilience. Alison chronicles her experience coping with her husband's stroke at age 30 while she was pregnant with their first child. A novelist, Alison has written several best-selling works, including Sissy, The Trader's Wife, and The Accidental Empress, as well as two children's books and a book she co-wrote with her brother. She graduated from Yale and now lives in upstate New York with her husband, Dave Levy, and their daughter, Lily, age two. And she is now pregnant with their second child. Alison, it's Zibby Owens. How are you? Hey, Zibby. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks so much for doing this interview. Uh, I don't have time oh, to read my... Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, I know you're short on time, so I'm going to jump right into it, if that's okay. Perfect. Yep. Ready when you are. Okay. Um, your book, Beauty in the Broken Places, was, it was just amazing. So moving, eloquent, relatable, honest, open. I just, I loved it. Um, what did it feel like for you coming out with such a personal story after writing historical fiction? Yeah, it was, well, thank you, first of all. And it was really, it was not a book I ever intended to write. Uh, as you said, uh, fiction was my jam. I had done four fiction books. I love historical fiction. I never really considered nonfiction, uh, but obviously it was also not an experience that Dave and I ever intended to live through, at least in the way that we did. And so it really it started as a very personal thing. It started with just the letters that I was writing to Dave that really were intended for our family and for Dave and to preserve the memories that he couldn't make on his own and to communicate with Dave in a really dark moment in our lives when I couldn't communicate with my actual husband, but that was the person, my partner, with whom I wanted to speak. I figured I would I would write it all down and I would write it to Dave in the hopes that someday, if he came back, he would be able to read and understand what we had been through. And from there, as with all of my books, the writing project sort of took on a life of its own, and in some ways it became the book that, even though I hadn't intended to write it, it became sort of a compulsion, and I realized, yes, this is actually the next project that I feel like I should, I need to be working on. Um, I loved when you wrote the following in your book. You said, I love stories. I love weaving narratives with the written word. My whole life I've been driven by a desire to learn people's stories, to get to the bottom of who they are and how they got that way, to ask questions and seek to understand what a person deems important. 
I mean, I totally yeah. agree. I could have written that myself. I feel like, yeah. How, how do you think that that inherent interest in others really informs your writing? When do you find that most useful? Absolutely. So I initially thought this would lend itself to a career either in detective work or people <laughs> often said I should be a lawyer or I thought journalism. I thought, you know, interrogating people, asking people, trying to get to the bottom of the story. And so that was the first path I went down was journalism for several years. I worked on that when I was in college on campus. And then those were my first internships. And then those were my first full-time jobs in New York City. But I realized journalism is a very specific type of writing. And particularly the type of journalism I was doing there was so much emphasis on deadline and live and breaking news and advancing the story to move it forward. And what I was craving was depth and time to explore, as you said, to get to the bottom of the story as opposed to just scraping the surface, giving the people the bullet points and moving on. And so I realized that actually that exploration of character and personality and plot and conflict, all of that I could actually do much more in a much more satisfying and gratifying way to me through the longer form of fiction writing and character development and plot development and storytelling and narrative in a fictional capacity. Well, it's nice to be the beneficiary of that decision of yours. <laughs> you know, um, I, I'm actually a beneficiary of it as well because it's a way better lifestyle than breaking news. <laughs> Um, I, so I have to tell you, I also went to Yale and the descriptions you gave, like completely brought me back to that time and place. I was literally in that same hall where you were memorizing slides for Scully's art history class. I know You took that class? I did. I took the same class. I was standing there like memorizing, like how am I supposed to memorize a million slides just up on the wall like that with so many other people around me. Um, but knowing that that's where you and Dave really noticed each other for the first time, it just like reading the book, it just gave me goosebumps. I could picture it so well. Um, And even how you wrote when you went back to the Harvard-Yale game, you know, that uh, had Dave not made it so far out of recovery that how you would have felt going back versus how you did end up feeling. So I was just wondering with your experience at Yale as an English major, uh, do you feel like that, that what you learned at Yale helped with your writing career or was it more the people and people like Dave and your friends and all of, all of the interpersonal things that sort of shaped who you became as a result? It was both. It was absolutely both. I think you could make a very strong case for the fact that I've never been more inspired and motivated and intimidated than in some of those small, higher-level English major seminars, just by the classmates around you and the way they think and the way they investigate language and ask questions and the way you really have to explain or sort of reason through how you arrived at your conclusion. You know, it's, it's a hard-fought conversation or paper or whatever it is that you're presenting as an English major at Yale because you really are going to be challenged and motivated by your peers and your professors. So I think it was absolutely in an academic setting where I was inspired to sort of go deeper into text and language and analysis and character and story. But then I also think that so much of the education that you reap at Yale is through the osmosis of just being there on the campus with your peers, as you said, your friends, your, you know, in my case, Dave, who was my significant other, 
just the passive sort of learning that happens from being surrounded by these people all around you where it's cool to be curious and it's cool to be inquisitive and it's cool to be a nerd and it's cool to like school and to like the books that you're reading for your English homework. Um, And so I think it was all of that. That was really Yale for me. I went in not knowing I wanted to be an English major, but I was so inspired by just the courses and the uh, professors and my classmates that that was really where I fell in love with story, both as a reader and as somebody who could then, you know, now what I do in my life is write about it. That makes sense. Yeah, I was um I was telling my husband, you know, I read now two books a week as I'm doing this podcast and I was and he's yeah. like, How are you gonna keep this up? And I was like, Well, you should have seen me in college. This is nothing, yeah. you know, the amount we yeah. had to read in college. <laughs> anyway. You know, I felt so privileged when we got to Yale. I was like, My full time job now is just that I have to read and that I have to be a student and that was I obviously I worked on campus too. I worked all four years, but but really your main priority every day is to read as an English major and I got I thought gosh what a what a great good fortune (laughs) this is is what I'm supposed to be doing um and I'll just uh I want to jump ahead to to parts of your book now um so well first do you want to just tell listeners um who might not know exactly sort of a, a, a synopsis of of what happened with you and Dave on the airplane and what followed after that yeah so at five months pregnant Dave and I took a last flight a baby moon, sort of become first becoming before becoming parents, sort of a last trip to take just as a couple before this new season of our life and our marriage. And on the plane, my husband, who is 30 years old, healthy, a doctor, an athlete, a healthy eater, he turned to me and he said, does my right eye look weird? And his right eye looked freakishly weird. His pupil was so dilated, but just in one eye. And so it was a very bizarre thing. And a few minutes later, Dave lost consciousness. And we were at 35,000 feet in the air. We had no idea what was going on. I had thrown out the worst-case scenario, thinking that it would be, you know, quickly debunked. I said, Dave's having a stroke? Um, But the answer was very quickly, you know, yes, this might be very serious. This might be a stroke. This might be life-threatening. So we made an emergency landing. We had been flying from Chicago towards Hawaii. So we made an emergency landing near Airport, Fargo, North Dakota. And Dave was in a coma. And it took took a while to deduce what had happened because it was such a rare life-threatening stroke, particularly in a patient of Dave's age and profile. But Dave did eventually wake up. And what happened was when he woke up, his mind had been wiped clean. He was, his brain was less functional than a newborn. And so he was completely in a state of amnesia. And so I began writing to Dave in this desperate sort of effort to talk to my husband, but also because I knew he couldn't make new memories and had no understanding of what was going on. And I also had no understanding of what was going on, really. Um, And so I just kind of worked my way through this with Dave by writing to him. And that became sort of the skeleton of this memoir about our experience of regrowing Dave's mind, regrowing our marriage, regrowing our family, and just what happens when at age 30 the life that you had planned for and thought that you had worked for and were going to be able to have um, just completely crumbled around you, what happens through the process of rebuilding? I have to say, I'm just, I'm so sorry that you had to go through this experience. I just, my heart goes out to you. I'm just, just had to say that. (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) Throughout most of the book, you were this just stalwart, optimistic, 
go-getter caregiver, always there for Dave, running the show, sort of managing your own pregnancy, just totally dealing. And then one of my favorite parts of the book came later when the when the drama, the adrenaline of the crisis had ebbed a bit. Yeah. And you and Dave and the baby were back at home, and you went from what you called, quote, the cool calm that comes with being in the eye of the hurricane, and perhaps even from being in a state of semi-shock, to, quote, the deep freeze of dark January, adjusting to life with a new baby and facing a new year when your patience began to fray. And you thought, quote, was this going to be my life forever? Was this going to be my marriage forever? And it was just such a relatable moment, that feeling of, okay, is this this it now? So can you tell me more about how you felt during that time, and then what helped you get through it? Yeah. So after the stroke, the moment you're talking about, this was about seven, eight, nine months later, the adrenaline wears off and we're through the acute physical crisis. Dave's survived the stroke. He's going to survive. Physically, he will be okay. Sort of the support network that had initially rallied around us that had been by our side every step in the beginning, everyone had kind of, you know, moved on. Dave, Dave was seeming to be doing pretty well and physically he was strong and everybody kind of had to get back to their lives and including us we had to settle in to our new normal but brain injury is such a long devastating non-linear road and recovery and so yes months after the fact Dave looked healthy and he you know people saw him and said oh Dave it's so good to see you back to yourself mentally, emotionally, cognitively, Dave was not himself. And that was what was so hard for Dave and for me was exactly the question you pointed to is I thought, is this going to be our life now? Is this going to be our marriage? And, you know, I mentioned earlier, Dave had to start from newborn, less than newborn. You know, he couldn't swallow. He couldn't breathe. These are things that newborns can do on their own. Dave couldn't when he woke up. So he had to literally regrow his brain from, from minus, <laughs> from negative. And, and then, you know, where we were in the moment where you say that the deep darkness of January, Dave was at about a high school student in terms of his brain and cognitive function. And he didn't have executive functioning. You know, he couldn't manage his life. Think about high school students. You know, they don't have the thoughtfulness to pick up their dirty clothes or to get a job or to manage their own lives. So imagine... You have a newborn whose brain is growing from zero. You have a husband whose brain is growing from zero. You don't want your partner to be sort of an inconsiderate, uh, sort of reckless, thoughtless teenager at that moment in your life. <laughs> you know, that, that was not the band I had married. <laughs> um, and there was sort of this, also this very hard tension at that point where, like with many teenagers, Dave thought maybe that he was doing better than he was. And so it was a very difficult position for me to be in as sort of wife who wanted to encourage him and, and believe in him and respect his, the hardship of his recovery, but also sort of still have to be this caregiver. And now I'm a caregiver to a person who resents having to be cared for. And so there's sort of that, that tension of, you know, Dave sees it as nagging. I see it as kind of trying to help him continue to push his recovery forward. Um, but that was actually when I learned a very operative and helpful term that's kind of relevant to all of us, executive functioning, that's something that everyone gets maybe senior year of college, maybe mid-20s, executive functioning, where if you think about it, you just sort of click into being the manager of your own life at that point, where you're not necessarily like that at 18 or early on in college or in high school. And Dave was not there yet. And so it was a very hard position for us to be in. I was caring for a newborn. 
I had some postpartum depression. I was exhausted. I was scared. I didn't know what Dave's, you know, career hopes would or could be. I didn't know if I was going to be taking care of Dave and this newborn on my own forever. I was lonely. You know, it was winter in Chicago. It was like 12 degrees out on a good day. So we weren't going outside. It wasn't safe to take a newborn outside. We were cooped up in this new apartment that we had just moved into, just the three of us. And our little family really struggled in that moment. And, and yeah, I was very honest and open about that because this, if we were going to tell the story, we were going to tell it truthfully. And it was not all roses and triumph and running on treadmills and healing and recovery. It was lumpy. And there, there were moments that were not pretty. And so I, Dave and I were very sort of adamant that we were going to be honest about those moments as well. You, know, you also had great advice uh, for friends who were trying to help you or, or not or not knowing how to do it the right way. Yeah. Um, you, were, you say in the book how you grew tired of comments like, I could never do what you're doing or I don't yeah. know how you're doing it or we're worried about you because um, yeah. they just they yeah. were you know, in vain attempts to help. So tell me how you wanted to respond to those com- yeah. comments and what would have been most helpful for you to hear? Like how could friends have helped you through this more so that you know, we all know if, if we have any, you know, how to respond better the next time to be there for people we care totally. about? And this was such a learning experience for me because it, it's so well-meaning when people say, you know, oh, I admire how you're getting through this, or I couldn't do it myself, or how do you do it? But it, as you said, it just it doesn't really help in that moment. And what I wanted to think was, well, you could get through it if it landed on you, because I didn't choose it. And it's not like I have some grand plan, and I have any idea what I'm doing, and I know how to get through it. It's, if you had to get through it, you'd have to get through it just the way I have to get through it. I didn't choose it. Um, really, probably what would have been most helpful was for someone to just remove any of the burden on me saying, you know, how are you doing it or how are you doing and just say, I'm coming over, I'm dropping off this dinner, I'm going to come over and hold your baby for an hour so that you can take a shower or so that you can take a nap or I'm going to drive Dave to rehab this day so that you can stay home with the baby or, you know, just I think when people are struggling and and just getting through every day on the calendar Sometimes the the greatest act of grace is just the practical hands and feet helping on the ground. Like, you don't have to worry about this one logistic of your life because you have so many things on your to-do list. Let me take that one off your list. You know, so whatever that is, uh, whether it's I'm going to bring over some milk and groceries or I'm going to take you out to coffee. Um, For me, that was what was most helpful was when the person sort of removed any burden of asking me what I needed or telling me that they were worried about me and instead just sort of taking the active role where they're like, I'm going to take this one thing off of your plate. I appreciated those moments. I feel like um, in times of loss or injury or, or any of these stressful situations, there's a group of people who kind of instinctively ends up knowing what to do and then a much bigger group that, that feels unsure sure. of how to interact sure. and sort of afraid. It, like, I, I feel like people say like, oh, well, I'm afraid to get in the way or, you know, a of friend course. loses yeah. a, someone. And um, I know like in my life when I've had, you know, losses as we all have, like no one gets in the way. <laughs> like, you know, you right. don't have to know it, you know, and like you still check email. You know, that's the other thing I find people, I don't know if you went through this, like people yeah. say, oh no, and and times I'm going to leave this person alone because they're going through so right. much. Well, for me, at least, I don't know about for you. Like, that doesn't help, right? Like, you, you know, know, if you want to be... So that's so true. And I, so I appreciated in the middle of the crisis when I was being flooded, people putting in their emails, 
don't respond to this right now, but yeah. I wanted you to know I'm thinking about. And then here's their email, and they send you their words of love and support, but they sort of remove the burden of you needing to do anything in return. Right. I appreciated that, but I completely hear what you're saying, and I agree. And I know from my perspective, too, grief or hardship or conflict, it can be it can be so awkward and difficult to know how to react. I And I, I completely get that, too, because I've been on the other end, too, where I've wanted to provide support or sort of lend my shoulder, but then I don't really know how. Right. And so it's very difficult. So I think... I think just the most important thing is like making yourself available, but just with no strings attached, no expectation. Like I appreciate the people who reached out and were like, you don't need to respond right now, but I'm here as soon as you're ready or as soon as you need me. Um, And sort of just made the open offer. And even just like the check-in, like I'm thinking about you, I'm here, let me know if you need anything. Um, Just, I would emphasize just like removing the burden on the person, but just extending sort of the support and the love and the offer because it, it means so much. It really, and it helps and it matters. And it can be awkward when you're in the person on the receiving end. I, I was very uncomfortable with sort of being so vulnerable and open about my needs mm-hmm. and about being the one who needed and was vulnerable. And I didn't like being in that position where I felt like I was being the taker and I felt like I was putting people out or imposing on them. So it's helpful to hear from your tribe and your support network that they want to be there to help you um, in whatever way you need and that, you know, you're not putting them out because where the tables turned, um, they call on you as well. Right. Um, You said um, a little bit later in the book um, during one of your dark moments, have you ever wanted to just trade lives to say, I can't do this anymore. Can someone take over for me? Um, when did you feel like this the most and how did faith help you pull through this difficult time? Yeah, I felt it probably nine or so months out when I had a newborn and I had a husband who physically looked good, but was mentally, emotionally, cognitively still not himself, still not my partner, still not the man I had chosen. Um, and I was just tired and, and I, I just, in the crisis, I think you sort of go into, like, hyperactive overdrive, and you're running on adrenaline. And then once that dissipates and fades a little bit later, you begin to process. And the blinders of the crisis come off, and you just think, oh, my goodness. Like, that was when I sort of took stock and assessed and was like, our life is, is just unrecognizable from what we thought it would be. And, you know, our hopes for what Dave had worked for for the past decade of his life you know, went up in smoke with all of the work he put into pre-med and medical school and residency. Um, and we just didn't know how that would affect our family and how that would affect just really like our trajectory, our plan A. And that was when I really thought, you know, this is when faith gets real. Faith, by definition, is something that you can't prove and that there's no evidence for. And so, yeah, I could go around saying life is good, God is good, everything is good, But really, up until that point in my life, that wasn't really faith. That was just agreeing with the overwhelming evidence, right? Mm -hmm. This was the moment when things didn't look good and when I was scared and alone and sad and confused that I had to decide, you know, do I believe that life will get better? Do I believe that God is good? Do I believe that Dave and I, you know, are going to stay in this marriage for better or for worse? Do I believe in the vows that we made in sickness and in health? Um, that's when it really all kind of got real and where the rubber met the road for 
how I felt about my faith, my family, and, and my position in this marriage and in motherhood and, and in our life together. Um, and that was, you know, that was when we really took stock and we're like, okay, we have to rebuild from here. The, the foundation has sort of come down and, and we're in the rubble now and now we begin to rebuild. And now just to go to more, um, you know, nuts and bolts type question, the yeah. structure of your memoir, um, and I'm sorry not to be talking about your other amazing novels, but I'm just oh. focusing on this one the most, but um, how did you pick the structure? Because I think it worked so well how you, you know, weaved the, the story of your relationship as it as it went on and, and grew into this beautiful marriage. And then at the same time, you know, the passages where you're in, you know, in the hospital and dealing with the day to day and all the medical things, like how did you decide on that and yeah. um, to make it work so well? Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, so the reader loses Dave as a character pretty early on because he has his stroke and loses consciousness, you know, first chapter. So in order for, the story to work and for the reader to know, you know, what it was that we lost in Dave and in our relationship and in our life and our marriage, we had to provide some context and some backstory. Um, and so that was why we had the idea to sort of weave in the past and the moments of our meeting and our courtship and our marriage and sort of what had gotten us up to that point when Dave's eyes shut and he lost, he lost consciousness. Um, and so we interwove the stories from the past with sort of the present and the crisis and, moving forward from the stroke. Um, and what I've heard from readers is that it works sort of because you need a, a little bit of a break from some of the more intense moments mm -hmm. of dealing with, you know, near death and, and some of the real, like, physical and emotional hardship of the stroke. It's good to have a reprieve every few chapters that's with something that's a little bit more light and a little bit more positive. Mm -hmm. um, and, and really, ultimately, this is, like, this is our specific story in terms of Dave's stroke and circumstances of our life and our marriage and, um, you know, our journey through healing and recovery. But really what we wanted it to be was more universal than that. You know, this is, this is sickness and healing. This is fear and hope. This is love. This is family. This is parenthood. This is marriage. Um, and so that was what we really tried to do with both aspects of those stories. Um, so you've learned a lot, obviously, um, not by choice necessarily, but about traumatic brain injury. And I know you are, you know, crusading for this cause more now. Are there organizations you found, or something that readers at home can do to support um, to support others in this situation? Yeah. So one of the big things we learned about, which I had had no idea prior to the stroke, was this concept of neuronal plasticity, which is something that we all have. This is not just relevant to stroke and brain injury survivors. Um, and that's the fact that our brains are plastic, which is that our brains are changing and our brains have the ability to adapt and heal and recover. Um, and that, you know, we use such a small percentage of our brain so that when part of it is battered and, and bruised by injury, whether it's stroke or something else, um, the neurons have this ability to, to heal and recover and build new bridges. And so the brain is the least understood and most remarkable organ in the body. And so that's why you know, it's so important, the brain, obviously, and so that's why it's, it's so devastating when your injury affects the brain. But the brain also has this capacity for miraculous healing in a way that no other part of the body does. And so to stimulate neuronal plasticity after injury is so important to try to trigger 
those neurons to fire up and come back online and form new connections. Um, you know, anything that forces you out of your routine and forces you out of sort of the rote rhythms of your life is going to stimulate neuroplasticity. So this is not just for stroke survivors, but even just turning the doorknob with your non-dominant hand or taking a shower with your eyes shut um, or brushing your teeth while standing on one leg. These are all things that are going to challenge the brain and stimulate neuronal plasticity. And so we learned that that was our buzzword, our lifeline, our mantra throughout um, Dave's recovery. Um, and so just at, I think that's so important. It's like the educational aspect of life after stroke or life after brain injury is just that you can do these things on your own to sort of trigger your own neuronal plasticity. And that even those who haven't suffered from strokes can also just know this about brain health and know this about keeping your brain young and fit and active and agile. Um, and so, you know, it's so scary after an injury because what do we do? You, you open up your computer and you go on Google and you go down this rabbit hole of research and information and you don't know what's credible and you don't know what's bogus. And so I almost sort of tried to not do too much of my own independent research unless it was like through doctors who were reliable and vetted. But the American Stroke, the American Stroke Association um, is incredible, um, and so is the National Stroke Association. And we were really, really fortunate that Dave did his rehab at Shirley Ryan Ability Lab in Chicago, which is also has a national presence. They were wonderful. Um, and so, so yeah, now Dave feels very strongly about speaking out and speaking to survivors and um, caregivers and supporting those who have walked sort of the harrowing road that he walked himself. And how, how is Dave doing now? He's doing so great. He is back at work. Um, we're three years out. We're celebrating Dave's alive day, the <laughs> anniversary of the stroke, in just a couple weeks. Um, and he's back to work in medicine. He's not practicing orthopedic surgery, but he's in medical consulting. Um, and he's also very, very adamant about writing and speaking um, with stroke survivor groups. And he just spoke with the American Stroke Association last week. Um, and we're expecting our second baby, which we honestly, I, I didn't even know if they would survive to know our daughter. Um, you know, when I was pregnant and he almost died, I thought, gosh, well, even if I lose Dave, thank God a piece of him will live on in our daughter who will be born in a few months. I was so grateful that Dave survived to know his daughter and that my daughter knows her father. Um, but I never thought we would be able to grow our family and have, have another child. And so we just consider this second pregnancy just such a blessing. And, you know, a few weeks ago we hit the 22-week mark, which is exactly where we were when Dave had his stroke. And that night we just sort of sat and Dave wept, and we were like, from here on out, you're experiencing this pregnancy for the first time. You know, you never made it past 22 weeks last time around. Um, and, and I'm experiencing it in, for the first time with a partner. And so thank you. He's doing very, very well. He, his brain, you know, the brain is miraculous, and he's made a miraculous recovery. Oh, I'm so happy. Um, just last question, what are you going to do next? And do you have any quick advice to aspiring writers? Yeah, so I'm turning to fiction next, which after sort of dwelling in this world of Dave's stroke and recovery and speaking and meeting so many stroke survivors um, and amazing people with their own stories of the club of the bad thing, fiction feels like jumping back into a, a hot fudge sundae or something. <laughs> so, 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 so sweet. Um, so I'm working on my next historical fiction, which I will be able to 
speak about very soon um, because my next most immediate launch, obviously, is our second baby who's due this summer. Um, and, and yeah, my advice to aspiring writers would be what was, what was so helpful for me to hear when I was an aspiring writer, which is do it. You know, if you have a story, sit down and write it. If that means writing at night after work or writing on weekends or writing when you have time off, um, put pen to paper and tell your story and, and, you know, be forgiving with yourself and, and, you know, work in drafts. You don't expect it to be perfect with your first draft. And Allison, if, if you could just go back in time to the gate before you boarded the airplane on which Dave had his stroke and tell yourself one thing that would help you get through it all, what, what would you have said to yourself? Oh, my goodness. I would hug myself and I would say, it will be hard, but you will be okay and your family will be okay. I promise you that. Oh, that's so beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Allison, for sharing not just your story, but your time today and um, being so inspiring. And, and uh, um, just thank you so much for, for creating this work of, of beauty. Thank you. And I'm sorry that um, my voice is breaking a little bit. I get a little bit emotional still. No, of course you do. It's completely understandable. I mean, how could you not? How could you not? Thank you for telling my story. Of course. All right. Take Have care. a good day. Bye-bye. <laughs> you too. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, sponsored by Babo Botanicals, B-A-B-O Botanicals.com. Mm-hmm.